Chapter 17. PPU. My new team was called the Public Protection Unit, PPU. And I went from having over 100 staff reporting to me to about 20. They were a great bunch of officers and all very experienced in their own fields of expertise. But part of my job was to mould them into a cohesive team where they could assist one another if one part of the team was busy and another part of the team was quiet. In reality, this never happened, because everyone was always stupidly busy. And each discipline was quite specialised in terms of how they worked and their own areas of knowledge. I had a lot to learn about all four disciplines, but I tended to focus most of my time working on child abuse investigations, because these were the most serious and complex and always required an immediate response. They were the cases that were also most likely to end your career. I spent most of my first few weeks on training courses of one sort or another. I started my senior investigating officer course, and then I did my specialist child abuse investigation course, both awarding nationally recognised qualifications. I then had to meet and get to know a whole raft of professionals from other partner organisations, mainly managers from children's social services, NHS paediatricians and other medical professionals involved in child welfare. Inevitably, there were a lot of well-established protocols that we all needed to understand and adhere to. Out of all of the different types of policing, I've ever done, this was the one where we needed to work most closely with partner organisations. This was all new to me and it came as a bit of a shock to find out about the sheer volume of cases my new department would deal with. I had two sex offender managers on my team and their job was to ensure that all of the registered sex offenders living on our patch were being managed according to national guidelines. All sex offenders are required to register their addresses with the police and probation services. There were also a whole range of different conditions that they would have to adhere to, depending on the nature of their offending, prison license conditions and level of risk. They would also have to permit access to their premises by police at any reasonable time without prior notice. I was fortunate to have brilliant sex offender managers who knew their business inside out and exactly who they needed to be worried about or keep an extra close eye on. Sex offenders, particularly those who offend against children, are notoriously manipulative and usually take great pains to hide their offending from the authorities. They're also prepared to play the long game and will take their time in identifying and grooming new victims and the families of the targeted victim. However, a good sex offender manager knows all the right questions to ask and they're eagle-eyed when they visit offenders and will quickly spot anything in the house that gives them cause for concern. Each manager was responsible for supervising and monitoring about 80 sex offenders in our patch alone, which was a huge workload. The internet massively increased the number of people on the sex offenders register, and there was barely a week that went by without a new name being added to the list. The UK was experiencing an explosion of people being arrested for possession of child sexual abuse images from the internet. And from time to time, once the computers belonging to such individuals were analysed, intrafamilial sexual abuse or sexual abuse of children connected to the family would be exposed. The child abuse units would then pick these cases up. 
I attended some brilliant courses on investigating child sex offenders, run by the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Unit in London. It proved to be a massive eye-opener. The courses were run by Dr Joe Sullivan, one of the most experienced forensic psychologists in the world, who spent his entire career working with and investigating child sex offenders. Joe was entertaining and fascinating in equal measure. What he didn't know about child sex offenders wasn't worth knowing. He'd worked in prisons for many years, interviewing some of the most serious offenders and learning about how they thought and behaved. He showed us videos of interviews that he'd conducted with lots of child sex offenders, explaining how they'd gained the trust of the people around the victims and the different methods they used to gain the compliance of the child. There were various tactics that they consciously employed with victims and carers, and there was a lot of consistency across offenders, almost as if they'd all gone to the same school to learn about child sexual offending. Joe gave us a taxonomy of about five or six typical types of offender, and explained how we could use this knowledge in planning arrests, the conversations we should have with suspects generally, how to treat them in custody, and the interview techniques we should employ to get the best outcome. It was disturbing and alarming, but brilliant stuff, and my team used these tactics in every investigation. We would study the victim's account, analysing it to establish the mindset of the offender and their particular grooming techniques. And when we then came to the arrest, we would put Joe's advice into action. By doing this, my team had one of the highest detection rates for serious sexual offences against children in the force. We were so sold on this approach that my amazing, wonderful detective sergeant, Josie, eventually studied to become a forensic psychologist in her spare time. Josie was a force of nature and incredibly committed to her job. She was one of the best detectives I've ever worked with and she achieved stellar results. Hundreds of dangerous people went to prison because of her and thousands of children were protected as a result of her professionalism and dogged determination. The child abuse detectives dealt with the physical and sexual abuse of children as well as serious neglect. They also investigated the sudden or unexplained death of any child under the age of 18. I was the senior investigating officer in the event of child deaths, but ultimately I was responsible for defining the investigative strategy for each serious case. I also had responsibility for deciding which cases we should discontinue, usually on the basis that we had done everything reasonably possible and such cases would then be handed back to social services. The job was extremely stressful at times because we all knew that if we missed something or made a wrong call, the consequences were serious and we would probably be hung out to dry by the courts and the media. The volume of referrals was unmanageable and each detective was carrying many serious cases simultaneously. We all knew that any one of these cases could easily end in the death of a child at the hands of a parent or a dangerous individual like a new boyfriend coming into the home. Many of the parents we dealt with led chaotic lives, blighted by physical abuse, drugs, alcohol and mental illness. The biological fathers were usually absent or uninterested, and the mothers would often have a succession of different sexual partners who had no biological tie to the child 
and no interest in their welfare. It was a toxic and dangerous mix for children. Most of the referrals would come from social services or from accident and emergency departments when a child was presented with injuries that were believed to be non-accidental. Investigating such incidents was never straightforward because very young children can't tell you what happened and the carers stay tight-lipped. So it usually comes down to expert medical evidence and identifying inconsistencies in the accounts given by carers. Frequently, however, it was tough to prove guilt to a criminal standard. If this was the case, we would go back to social services, who would put in place a protective regime. Children would very often be removed and placed with a foster family until social services were happy that the child was no longer at risk. And part of our job was to help make that decision to remove a child. I had to authorise those removals, which was often at the point of birth. I knew what a big responsibility this was, and it was traumatic to see the distress caused to a mother by removing their baby as soon as it was born. I dealt with a lot of child deaths during the three years I spent in this role. These were always incredibly sad and difficult to deal with, but we had to get on with the job and try to remain as professional and emotionally detached as possible, whilst at the same time treating bereaved parents with compassion. Every death of a child is a possible murder. However, it was more likely to be an accident or a catastrophic medical issue. So it was vital to keep an open mind and follow the evidence. As a father of four kids, I know how hard parenting can sometimes be and how desperate a parent can feel as a result of sleeplessness, frustration and stress. Many of these deaths occurred in the early hours of the morning and I was on a force-wide on-call rota for sudden or unexplained deaths of children. So I would quite regularly get called out in the middle of the night and have to drive to some far-flung part of Birmingham to deal with them. Many of these had been accidental, as a result of parents sharing a bed with their baby and then rolling on top of them during the night, or the baby overheating and dying. Babies find it difficult to regulate their own body temperature, so this is a big risk factor, particularly when combined with other factors such as cigarette smoke in the house. I also had to investigate a few child suicides, and these were definitely the worst things I had to deal with in my entire career. They were often the result of bullying at school or in the local neighbourhood, and they were desperately sad. The youngest suicide I dealt with was that of a 10-year-old. At that time, my own son was 10 years old, which made it even more traumatic. I will spare you the details of what happened, but it was terrible. I still occasionally have very bad memories about that incident, and others like it more than 10 years later. In this particular case, I had to go to the hospital in the early hours of the morning and help the paediatrician remove the dead child's pyjamas as potential forensic evidence. It was a really dreadful thing to have to deal with, and I can't begin to imagine how that child's parents coped with such a senseless tragedy. We were required to attend forensic post-mortems. I also find this very difficult. The paediatric pathologists were brilliant and they did their job with the utmost sensitivity. I have no idea how they could keep on coming to work every day to do their jobs. Thank God we have people who can do this stuff, 
because they were frequently able to say with confidence that a death was caused as a result of a medical issue, and this would then allow parents to grieve the loss of their child without having any cloud of suspicion hanging over them. Despite the grim nature of our work, we had a lot of laughs on the team too, and I tried to maintain a very light-hearted atmosphere as much as possible. Police officers tend to have quite a dark sense of humour, and this was particularly the case on my team. It was not uncommon, however, to have staff in tears over something they'd just dealt with, and it was important to give them the space they needed. One of the requirements of the job was that all staff have psychological assessments roughly every six months. These were a bit of a joke, because every time the psychiatric nurse came and spoke to the staff individually, she would say, your staff are all suffering from high levels of stress and burnout, and you are too. Yes, I know I'd respond, but the referrals aren't going to go away or stop coming in, and we've been told we're not going to get any more staff, so what do you suggest we do? There was never a realistic answer to that question, so we just carried on, and everyone made the best of it. I don't doubt that many people who did this job went on to develop long-term psychological problems. Not so much because of what they saw and dealt with, but because of the constant fear of being blamed if something bad happened, that was outside their control and they were not supported. Officers who work on these teams deserve great respect and recognition. Sadly, the only thing they seem to receive any attention about is when something goes horribly wrong. Today, there are very high levels of stress, anxiety and depression in UK policing. And the government has made a half-hearted attempt to address this on a national scale by providing dedicated support, in inverted commas. However, this situation has been created by a policing and criminal justice system that is so unbelievably broken in so many ways that treating the symptoms without addressing the causes will achieve nothing. During this period, I went through a very unexpected and traumatic marital breakdown, followed by a divorce. I can remember sitting in my office with my head in my hands, crying, as I tried to make sense of what had happened. We had two kids and a mortgage, and everything in my life was suddenly such a terrible mess emotionally and financially. I didn't know where to start with it all. The team were all amazing. They really looked after me and showed me great love. But I was pretty hopeless for a few months as I tried to get myself back onto an even emotional keel. In the meantime, I was going out and dealing with child deaths. And I was also on the on-call murder rota at weekends. So I was having to try and deal with adult murders and other very serious incidents like kidnappings. I wasn't sleeping well and I was probably teetering on the edge of a serious nervous breakdown. But I carried on. I look back on it all now and realise that I should have taken some time out to recharge. But I never took a single day off work. At one point, I hadn't slept a single wink for four days. And I genuinely thought that I was going mad. I don't mind admitting that at one point I even called the Samaritans in the middle of the night because I was feeling so desperate and I was worried that I might do something stupid. During this period, I had to go to an awards ceremony one evening for members of my team who were receiving awards. And afterwards, 
the command unit business manager, Terry, came up to me and asked if I was okay. I lied and said I was fine, even though I actually felt like I was having some sort of out-of-body experience. She told me that I looked really terrible, and I broke down and told her that I hadn't slept for four days and that I thought I was cracking up. She got me left home, and the next day I went to see my doctor, who immediately gave me medication to calm me down and help me sleep. I think that doctor possibly saved my life, because I'd started to feel really desperate and was having some very dark thoughts. Our colleagues in the domestic abuse team were also cracking under the pressures of completely unrealistic workloads. Occasionally I would go into their little office and see the teetering piles of referrals all over their desks. These were graded according to risk, medium, high or very high. And they were then managed and prioritised based on this risk score. The score was worked out using a questionnaire that officers attending the original incident would fill out which was based on academic research that assessed the behaviours exhibited by a perpetrator that was indicative of the future likelihood of a domestic homicide or a serious assault. The problem with assessing risk in this way is that it can produce very inconsistent results and often depends on the way a question is asked, the thoroughness or inquisitiveness of the officer, the truthfulness of the victim and all sorts of other variables. Also, like every risk assessment, it will only ever provide a snapshot of a moment in time. Thus, a risk assessment carried out on a Thursday that comes back as medium could easily escalate to high risk on a Friday, for all sorts of random reasons. It really was a game of Russian roulette for the domestic abuse team, and they would come into work every day half expecting to learn that one of their abuse victims had been murdered. Domestic abuse is such a complex issue and victims can fail to disclose their abuse for a very long time until they call the police for the first time. It's become such an epidemic in UK society and the police have to respond to all domestic abuse calls. Indeed, a typical response officer will spend an inordinate amount of time sorting out domestics. The problem, however, is that the definition of what constitutes domestic abuse has become broader and broader over time. According to the Crime Prosecution Service, the current definition is any incident or pattern of incidents of controlling, coercive or threatening behaviour, violence or abuse between those aged 16 or over who are or have been intimate partners or family members regardless of gender or sexuality. Therefore, it's not unusual for the police to get called to an incident in which a teenage brother and sister are squabbling over the remote control, or a silly argument between a father and their teenage son that has escalated. Strictly speaking, these types of incidents fall into the official definition of what constitutes domestic abuse, and investigating them requires a lot of additional work. The police have been criticised so many times for failing to protect domestic abuse victims, but the simple truth is that they're often too busy dealing with trivial incidents that would be better resolved with words of advice, which would free them up to focus on the victims who are genuinely at risk. Right at the end of my service in 2019, 
dealing with domestic abuse was the single biggest demand on frontline police officers, probably followed by dealing with serious mental health issues in the community as a result of government funding cuts for those services. Besides dealing with child abuse, the other part of my PPU team were the officers who managed allegations relating to vulnerable adults. Typically, these involved elderly residents of care homes or adults with learning difficulties who had received unexplained injuries or who were subject to some sort of abuse. There were only two officers at Stetchford working on these kinds of cases, Bev and Martin, who were both extremely good at their jobs. They had also become very experienced at dealing with dysfunctional teenagers from local children's homes who frequently went missing. And it was this issue that grew into one of the most significant developments of my time in the PPU and probably my entire career. <laughs>